You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. And one of the things that I was thinking about was the title of the book. So this is how they tell me the the world ends. And and I was thinking about that title and also your journey in writing the book. And and in some ways, it seems like, you know, like the heroes from mythology, you've went into this netherworld uh, and hopefully came out wiser. And, and one of the questions I guess a lot of our listeners will be, will, 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 sorry, will be, will be um, just how scared should they be? Um, you know, what are we talking about? Um, you know, the end of the world, Armageddon here. Like, tell us a little bit more about the title and, and about what you see coming over the horizon with all of this stuff. So the title came to me as all good ideas do when I was standing in the shower one day. <laughs> and, uh, this is how they tell me the world ends. And the reason I phrase it that way is because it leaves open this window of, is this really how it's going to end? Um, and my take is that for a long time, when I started covering cybersecurity at the New York Times, people were screaming about a cyber Pearl Harbor or a cyber 9-11. And that sounded like very alarmist language. And I sort of disregarded it at first. But over the last 10 years, what I've, what I've come to realize is it's not the alarmism of those analogies that trouble me. It's two things. It's one, we didn't see Pearl Harbor coming. You know, we didn't know that the Japanese bombers were coming for us that day. 
But we have seen the equivalent of a cyber attack coming for more than a decade. Um, I also think just this focus on bombs and explosions is a little bit of a distraction from the predicament we're already in, which in the book I liken to more of a plague, um, given where we are in the world right now. I mean, when you think about it, just in the last five years, Russia has hacked our nuclear plants, our elections, our power grid. Russian cyber criminals are taking over our hospitals with ransomware. They've taken over our cities with ransomware. China, after a brief pause, has essentially pilfered most American intellectual property. Iran has really emerged from this digital backwater into one of the most prolific cyber armies in the world. In fact, the only country that's really backed off in terms of cyber attacks on, on US targets over the past four years was North Korea. And that's just because they were too busy hacking into the sort of Bitcoin cryptocurrency exchanges and banks that would give them the currency they needed to get back to their nuclear weapons. <laughs> so we're in a very precarious place. And every day these attacks are happening. And I used to be able to cover them every day. And now from my sort of quarantined perch here, we're getting hit from so many sides from so many different places for so many different purposes that it's really become almost impossible to keep track of what's happening. And I cover this for a living. And the other thing is there's just been such an escalation in these attacks. Each attack seems to build off the last. You know, you think back to one cyber attack that really stuck in people's minds was the uh, North Korea cyber attack on Sony Pictures for that lame movie they made with Seth Rogen and James Franco, which <laughs> title escapes me at the moment. But, you know, they hacked Sony and they didn't just decimate 70% of their servers, which often got overlooked, but they released executives' emails and people got fired over it. And when the next attack happened, which was, you know, the next big attack was the Russian attack on the DNC. Oh, isn't that interesting? that they leaked Democrats' emails to embarrass them and again, get people you know, fired and, and try and hurt Hillary Clinton's candidacy. Um, and it just seems like that's a good place to focus because each big nation state attack that we have seen has really escalated from the last. Now, in terms of Russia, you know, they, they haven't just hacked our elections and our democracy. And there's a lot of focus on, on Russian trolls and the internet research agency and some of the division they've stoked on social media. You know, they've also hacked our power plants. At one point, we know from a screenshot, they actually got their fingers on the switches that control the, our nuclear plant, essentially. And what did we do to respond to that? We uh, reported at the New York Times that Cyber Command has commenced its own very loud attacks on the Russian grid, you know, in sort of like a show of force and an effort at mutually assured destruction. But where is this all taking us? You know, it's taking us to a place where instead of locking these systems down, we're essentially just making them more vulnerable and relying on mutually assured destruction to keep us safe. And that might work in the nuclear domain, but in the cyber domain, it doesn't work as well. And one of the reasons it doesn't work as well is because the internet is borderless. You know, an attack on one country's systems isn't just limited to that country's infrastructure and systems unless it's pulled off very, very, very well. 
um, it usually has a lot of collateral damage. And so, you know, just getting back to the US American hack on Iran's nuclear facility on Natanz, they designed that code clearly with lawyers looking over their shoulder because the code was designed to look very specifically for the exact configuration of centrifuges that's that spun at Natanz nuclear facility. And it, that code did not work on any other system so that even when it did get out, even when it infected, you know, American systems like Chevron was hit with that with that code, it didn't do anything because it had been designed so specifically to only infect that Iranian nuclear facility. But fast forward, you know, almost seven years later, when Russia pulled off an attack on Ukraine that aimed to really freeze up its government systems, um, that code didn't just hit Ukraine, it hit any company that had even one employee working remotely from, from Ukraine. And that attack, which happened in 2017, was called NotPetya. And it blew back on uh, Pfizer, on FedEx, Merck, the, the American pharmaceutical company, had to um, dispose of a lot of vaccines that were hit in the attack and had to tap emergency supplies at the CDC. You know, FedEx had to pay $400 million in damages. And interestingly, it even blew back on Russia. That same code uh, took out systems at Rosneft, a big Russian oil company. So it was just a very clear example of just how much collateral damage these attacks can have. And if we're going to just rely on escalation, um, you know, that, that's a very dangerous road to walk down because you know, an attack on one system usually blows back on many more systems than the target. And and one of the things that I found fascinating in the book was, uh, I'm thinking about this because the Super Bowl is coming up this weekend. But you talk about you, you talk about the you know some of the differences between here in the United States. You talk about some of the differences between the offense and the defense. I wondered if you could just. Uh, to enlighten our, lead, our listeners a lot a bit more about that. Well, you know, like what defense <laughs> is the short answer. The good news is now that election security has suddenly become a GOP issue as well, um, I think there will be more of a focus on making sure each vote that gets cast is done on paper or has a paper record. Um, that can be audited, what they call these risk-limiting audits, where they'll take a sample of ballots and just make sure that that is actually how people intended to vote, that kind of thing. Um, but as far as sort of the security of our critical infrastructure, and by critical infrastructure, it's sort of a wonky term, but I just mean designated critical infrastructure, like the power grid, hospitals, mobile towers, trading systems, banks, um, when we talk, I do think that there has been a big wake up call that we need to lock down our healthcare systems, for instance. I mean, we have seen so many ransomware attacks on hospitals in the United States over the past few months, really, really horrible attacks when people's medical records are getting wiped out. Now, you might think, well, that's not so bad because they can still get treated. But in one of the cases I've covered, I've covered at a Vermont hospital, you know, chemo treat, uh, chemo patients were not able to get their chemotherapy because, you know, there's almost like an algorithm to how they get that treatment. And when all of those records were wiped out, people were, nurses were just trying to reconstruct these treatments from memory. And, and that is no place 
for um, American healthcare workers to be, especially during the pandemic. So I do think that there is going to be a big renewed focus on cybersecurity. You know, we're already seeing it um, play out in the Biden administration with some of the nominations that are expected to get announced over the next couple of weeks. Um, the president has made it very clear that he, he intends to make cybersecurity a major issue. And we haven't even discussed the latest Russian attack on, <laughs> on uh, American systems. And I think, you know, that is a horrible, horrible attack. It'll be months, if not years, before we get to the bottom of it. But the good news is, is the only way out is to really examine our software supply chain, really look at where our software is coming from, how it's secured, whether it's secured with at design or after the fact, um, and how we're looking for breaches and how we're tracking our adversaries and how we're notifying each other when we do get hacked. So, you know, it's almost like we've hit rock bottom here and there's no way but, but up. Stuxnet is seen by some people as quite an effective, um, you know, episode, but in your book, you, it, it's almost like a Pyrrhic victory in terms of zero days, right? Yes. I mean, you know, I doing the book and doing the research and going back to Stuxnet was really eye-opening for me because on the plus side, I mean, when you it, just going back and looking at the context of that attack was fascinating because what was happening at the time was, you know, we were mired in the war in Iraq. We were in Afghanistan. We were seeing record deaths from IEDs. And at the same time, Israel was pressuring the United States and then the George W. Bush administration to lend them our, our um, bunker buster bombs. And when the U.S. intelligence agencies played out what would happen if we enabled an Israeli attack on Iran's nuclear facilities, it was very clear it was going to lead to World War III. And the, at that point, it was Bush's second term, and he had very little appetite for starting yet another war in the Middle East. And the Israelis were demonstrating every day just how serious they were about bombing the Tons. You know, and one really memorable piece of research, you know, Israelis were sending their fighter jets and helicopters from Tel Aviv to the Acropolis in Greece and doing running fight, fighter jet, jet tests. And that was not a coincidental um, distance. It was the exact distance from Tel Aviv to the Acropolis was almost the exact distance from Tel Aviv to the Natanz nuclear facility. And so the Bush administration knew they had it, they had to come up with a third option. And that third option was presented by the NSA which said, we think we might actually be able to do something to slow Iran's nuclear program using zero days, essentially. And what they came up with was a bloody masterpiece, which was they combined seven zero days, some in Microsoft software, some in Siemens industrial software that essentially allowed them to get into a closed network that was not online. They did that by put someone, we don't know who, put a USB stick or carried a USB stick into Natanz, put it into their closed network, and were able to essentially, using these zero days, crawl from one system to another until they eventually got to the Siemens controllers that um, decide how fast or slow these rotors spin. 
And in some cases, they spun these rotors faster than they were intended to spin. In some cases, they slowed them down to a trickle. And they also did this pretty cool thing, which I compared to Ocean's Eleven, where they also kind of put up a fake film of sorts that just showed all the engineers at Intons that everything was running smoothly, when in fact, behind the scenes, their rotors um, were destroying their own uranium centrifuges. And, you know, by all accounts, um, that program set Iran's nuclear ambitions back a few years. So short term, it was a huge success. Now, long term, what happened was somehow, we don't know how, that worm got out of the building. Stuxnet got out. Security firms all over the world were able to dissect it. Ultimately, they were able to attribute it back to the United States and Israel. And no one more, you know, no one really picked up the lessons of Stuxnet more than Iran, because after Stuxnet, they started their own cyber espionage, cyber warfare programs. They now boast, you know, we don't we have no way of knowing this whether this is true, but something like the fifth biggest cyber army in the world. And they've reckoned that they can use cyber um, to fulfill a lot of national objectives, not just for espionage, but they've used cyber for ransomware attacks. Um, They've used it to hold our online banking websites hostage in one very memorable attack, which was some, one of the biggest, most destructive attacks after Stuxnet. They used computer code to wipe out all the data at Saudi Aramco you know, a U.S. allies, uh, you know, state-owned oil company. They didn't just wipe it out. They replaced it with an image of a burning American flag. And with that attack, which was called Shamoon, they really showed that there was nothing holding them back from using cyber as a weapon for destruction. And where we are now, just to circle back on that, you know, where we are now is that um, they were really held back by the Iran nuclear agreement. You know, that really gave them a reason to not try and jeopardize that agreement by pulling off some of these uh, more terrorizing attacks. But the minute that that agreement got dismantled, uh, you know, we saw a huge resurgence in Iranian cyber attacks. But then, you know, beyond Iran, Stuxnet really showed the world what you can do with code. You know, it's not just espionage. You can actually get into your enemy systems and turn off you know, whatever you want to do. And, and just at the beginning of the pandemic, um, this attack kind of got overlooked because of everything that was happening. But there was one a- attempt by Iranian hackers to get into an Israeli water treatment facility, which to me is just the most harrowing attack of all, t- of all time. Because if you can get into a water treatment facility systems, you can essentially contaminate the water supply um, for large, large numbers of the population. And then that's a very real scenario. Um, and, you know, even here where there was one, there was one memorable attack where an Iranian hacker got into the controls of the Bowman dam. Okay. So it turns out we have two Bowman dams in the United States. We might have more, but we have two, two. And when they found an Iranian hacker in the controls of the Bowman plant, uh, I was told that, you know, John Brennan made a you know very famous 3 a.m. phone call um, to, at the time, Michael Daniel, who was the White House cybersecurity coordinator, saying, like, they're in the dam, they're in the dam. Now, the dam that I believe is in Oregon, um, if they could have, you know, basically dismantled the locks on that dam, they could have created a cyber-induced tsunami 
that would have been horribly destructive for everyone living downstream of that dam. Now, fortunately, we don't know whether it was a mistake or what was happening, but they got into a, a different Bowman Dam, which was a tiny little dam that controlled like a small trickling creek uh, in Westchester, New York. Um, and so fortunately, we didn't respond and we were able to figure out which Bowman Dam they were in and, uh, you know, respond accordingly. But, uh, you know, it, it was very clear that at least Iranians had motivation to explore what might happen and how they would potentially get into the dam infrastructure of the United States. And that's a, that's a very scary scenario. We'll be right back after this. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. And, and just another couple of uh, final questions. I'm, I'm mindful of your time. I don't want to uh, abuse, abuse it. Um, <laughs> and, I, and, and, <laughs> and I could talk to you about it for days. Um, maybe, maybe we can reconvene another time and um, you know approach some of these, pick up some of these topics. So, so this book is going to be available on our bookstore. I was wondering, you know, Give another few highlights that that readers and listeners can can find that they're not going to find anywhere else. Oh well, let me think about it. I mean, one is just where this market has drifted. So you know, I flicked at this earlier, but I went. I had heard murmurings that there was a market for zero days and zero day um, or for hacking talent in Argentina. And I went down to Argentina. I went to a hack a, a hacking conference called Echo Party there that they have every year, and it was really interesting. So you know, compared to Silicon Valley, Argentina is way behind, and Buenos Aires is way behind in terms of its technology, largely because of um, embargoes and, and restrictions on what they can import. But because there are these restrictions, there's a whole class of really well-educated um, technical engineers who learn to hack just as a matter of living. You know, if they wanted the next coolest game or iPhone app or, um, you know, what have you, they had to learn how to hack to get it because it wasn't immediately avail available to them like it is here in the United States. And so just as a matter of being a, a teenager, a clever teenager, there's a whole generation of hackers that have grown up in Argentina that really understand technology from the bottom up. And it's created a huge um, network of hackers that are really good at not just finding zero days, but writing them into exploits. 
And so when I went down there, it became very clear that this is where um, other governments uh, that zero day hackers and brokers in the United States and, and Europe might not want to sell to certain Middle Eastern governments. But in Argentina, where they really don't see the United States as an ally, but as an aggressor, you know, they are just as willing to sell those zero day exploits to Iran or to um, Saudis or some government that might use it to track and monitor or terrorize their own people. Um, and it was very clear to me at that conference that that is exactly what was happening. And I remember sitting down with um, Ivan Arce, who is sort of a godfather of the hacking scene down there. And he's not selling zero days to, to governments. He's sort of in an older generation. But one of the things he warned me about was that there was this new generation that was coming up and finding that selling zero day exploits to governments could get them a pretty dope apartment in the nice Palermo neighborhood and in Buenos Aires that they could live tax-free. They weren't encumbered by sort of Argentina's um, economic problems and they can make this money under the table. And it had this James Bond element to them. And, and he was sort of explaining this to me and I asked a really stupid question and I phrased it um, in a pretty dumb way, which was, I said, so, so will these guys only sell to, you know, the United States and good Western governments? And what he said will never leave me. He said, Nicole, you want to, you know, check yourself here because the last time I checked a country that bombed another country into oblivion wasn't China or Iran. It was the United States. You know, we don't think of the United States as a good Western government. We don't think of it as having this halo of democracy around it down here. So we'll just sell to whoever presents the biggest bag of cash. And in that moment, I just realized how much this market had drifted away from the United States. You know, that we don't control what hackers in the Southern Hemisphere are doing with these tools. We don't control who they sell to. Um, and then the other thing I would point to is just our own cyber warriors. You know, there was this class of NSA analysts um, who worked within TAO, which is the NSA's hacking division. It's called, stands for Tailored Access Operations, who were lured away from the agency by these defense contractors around the Beltway with promises to quadruple their salaries and to send them to um, countries like the UAE and Abu Dhabi, where they could work and have this sort of tax-free luxury uh, contractor lifestyle. And, you know, they were told, you'll just be doing the same work you were doing at the NSA, you'll just be doing it for an American ally, you're going to be hunting for terrorists. Um, you know, eventually this just helps the war on terror and you'll just be making more money and having more fun doing it. And one of the former NSA analysts that was doing this uh, for a U.S. contractor in Abu Dhabi came to me one day and said, you know, I have a story to tell you. And that story is in the book, which is essentially that um, very soon after he got to Abu Dhabi, it became clear that... Um, you know, at first they told him he was going to be hacking terrorists, and he was. He was tracking ISIS terror cells. But it wasn't long before his bosses uh, pivoted, and they told him, you know, actually, we've, we've heard these reports that Qatar, uh, which is a sort of frenemy of the uh, UAE and the Saudis, we've heard Qatar is funding the Muslim Brotherhood. Can you look into that for us? And so this former NSA 
analyst said, well, I could, but that means hacking it into Qatar. And they said, yes, yes, do that. That's good. Yeah, go ahead and do that. By the way, this has all been sanctioned by the US government. You know, this is all part of your mission. So he started hacking into, um, you know, Qatari government networks, and he didn't find evidence that they were sponsoring the Muslim Brotherhood, but the requests kind of kept coming. And one of those requests, was we want to know where Qatari royals are flying. We want to know who they're meeting with. We want to know what they're saying. And so he got into the Qatari um, Qatari royals emails. And, you know, this all was part of the mission. You know, they kept telling him. And then one day, um, whose emails uh, should pop up on his computer screen, but Michelle Obama's, who was then the first lady of the United States, and, you know, Sheikha Moza in Qatar had been communicating with Michelle Obama because Michelle was planning a trip to Qatar to promote her education initiatives. And so all of a sudden, you know, freeze the tape right there. This former NSA analyst is reading emails from the first lady of the United States while she's in office. And that moment, I think, just tells you everything you need to know about how out of control these programs have gotten. You know, we haven't just lost control of the market. We've lost control of the market for our own cyber talent. And a lot of people with these skills can find very lucrative job opportunities with other governments. And because there are so there's such little oversight and there's so few such little red tape in some of these other countries, it's a very slippery slope. And, you know, it doesn't take that long before suddenly the First Lady of the United States' emails are popping up on your computer. So that's in the book and, and that's not something you can read anywhere else. And to me, it just is just a very um, clear illustration of just how, how out of control these programs have gotten. I mean, talking about Michelle Obama makes me think about um, one one of the things that I found quite interesting in the book was you flesh out some of the various places that you end up, but it's quite there's there's a, there's an interesting gender dimension to all of this, isn't there? Some you know some of the places you would turn up, you would uh, be one of the only women or one of few women, and you know this this kind of you know I mean I guess this feeds into a lot of stereotypes right of the kind of nerdy hackers like all men um, and so forth I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that journey being a being a woman and 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 going into this um, predominantly masculine world well yes I mean there is definitely an undercurrent of that throughout the book and one thing I write is, you know, to every woman who complains about the ratio of men to women in tech, I challenge you to go to a hacking conference. <laughs> and, you know, it's even worse than that. I'm not just a woman and a journalist. I'm a not, I'm not very technical. You know, I don't have a computer science background. I haven't grown up in this hacking world. But yeah, I mean, it just is, it's a hard world to break into. At, at these conferences, everyone's really into jujitsu. I, I don't know where that started. It's I, I've been told it's like hacking in, in that it's like the physical equivalent of a puzzle, you know, but it's like, for whatever reason, there's this huge sideshow at that immunity conference of people doing jujitsu. And 
there's no way you were going to get me into a jujitsu uh, tournament. And <laughs> so, <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm sharing that anecdote because it's just so weird. It's just so weird to be a female journalist in this space. And, um, you know, sometimes it comes in handy. Sometimes people will mistake me for, you know, the, the PR person or, you know, restaurant staff or hotel staff. Um, but most of the time I just stick out like a sore thumb and it's, it's really hard to get anything out of these people at these conferences, but, um, you know, particularly when you're a woman. And then the other thing about being a woman is, and a woman, female journalist is Twitter, you know, Twitter, it's like journalists get it all day long. Female journalists get it particularly bad. Female journalists who work in information security and cybersecurity get it even worse. And so, you know, I have to write for a lay audience. And I really wrote this book for my mom. You know, I wanted someone like her who is in her 70s, who is not technically minded to be able to follow along and understand the consequences of these programs and of this market. And people in the world of information security, which is highly technical, don't like that. They often don't like my translations for the lay person. You know, they want me to say it using jargon or in a more technical way. And that lends itself to its own criticism. So, you know, every day I could send you a screenshot of my DMs and it would not be pretty. Um, and that, you know, that is probably the worst part of my job and was maybe the worst part of this book was I think there were a lot of people who did not want this market exposed, who tried to preempt some of the inevitable criticism that would come to the market by attacking me on Twitter. And so that just became, unfortunately, a pretty big um, dynamic I had to get used to over the last couple of years. Well, congratulations on the book. I believe it was it seven years it took you to, to, to write it. Is that correct? Yes. And, you know, it took seven years. But, you know, to be fair, I probably could have done it faster if I hadn't had a baby, um, <laughs> but mm. I don't regret that. I just, you know, I wish I could have gotten it out earlier, but you know, at the same time, it does feel like the right moment to get it out. Uh, absolutely. And I meant, I meant that more as a, a compliment and that so much, uh, so, so much research and work has went into it. It's really evident. Well, th- thanks so much for your time. Um, I was thinking maybe in the future it could be good to do something else, either another podcast or maybe a public program at the museum uh, when COVID is over. Um, you know, I would love I'll, that. Yeah, that would be great. And I, maybe I could even do my book party there. I should talk to the publisher about trying to host something there. Do people do that? We've probably got the best rooftop in DC because you can see... You can see the. I think it, I think I'm right in saying it's the only place in DC where you can see the Washington Monument, the U.S. Capitol, and the Potomac River all at the same time. Wow! So, what were you, where were you on January sixth? The International Spy Museum is a full five hundred one c three non profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.